Dotnet Rocks episode 738 with guest Rob LaBay. Recorded live Thursday, January 19th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, it's .NET and it's uh, Security Day here at .NET Rocks Central. Indeed it is. How are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. Nothing to complain about. Yeah, I'm working on some new audio stuff. Nice. Um, uh, well, I can't say too much about it except that I'm going to be doing a video show. I don't know if you call it a podcast, but a regular show on uh, on video on guitars, acoustic guitars. Interesting. I'm looking forward to that. High end acoustic guitars, really good guitars, and we're going to record them in the studio, and you'll be able to A B. And see the difference between this guitar and that guitar, and we'll fully document the microphones and preamps and things that we use. Um, we're shooting a pilot next week, and uh, we're going to sponsors, um, and we have companies interested in doing it already. So if you play acoustic guitar, stay tuned. Nice. We'll let you know what goes on. Hey, man, uh, let's just jump in. Better okay. know framework. Love it. Yeah. It's- All right, what do you got? Get on that thing now. Do that thing. Do that thing. Do that thing with that thing. All right. I know I've done this before. and uh, But it's security day. Yeah, it's security day. So string. Nice. Represents text that should be kept confidential. Mm-hmm. The text is encrypted for privacy when being used and deleted from computer memory when no longer needed. This class cannot be inherited. That means it's sealed. Yeah. Uh, it implements iDisposable. And, um, you know, that's pretty much it. Um, you, so we're going to talk about this in the show, but sometimes, you know, people can hook into your processes and see, oh, I don't know, credit card numbers that are in sure. strings that are hanging out in memory. Well, and the bigger thing being with garbage collected memory, even when you've used it and destroyed it, it's not going to get cleaned up right away. And right. The, the crypto side of things, make sure that doesn't happen. Right. So it may be a little slower. Yeah. I don't know. Haven't done any real testing with it, but I bet it's slower. But it might be fast enough for you. Well, and more importantly, if it's part of the requirements, you're willing to sacrifice the speed for security. But that right. sounds like the conversation we're about to have. That's right. We'll get to that. But nice. first, who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 733. And that was that lost show we did with Scott Willicky about reporting. Oh, yeah. Uh, which uh, I got to apologize to Scott. We literally misplaced this recording. It should have been published probably a, a month earlier, but uh, it looks like it was well received because uh, Jeff Dalton wrote us a great comment and he opened with, what a great show. When Carl first mentioned the C word comment, I immediately thought of COBOL. Uh- when I first got started in IT, we did all our hard copy reports in COBOL and the dynamic reports in Visual Basic 1. That brought back some memories. I'm really glad the topic of table reporting formats came up. For some reason, it seems like these are still the preferred report formats inside of enterprise shops. I can remember several long conversations in the 90s about why table reports were better than graphs. I think each have their own place. 
Mm-hmm. I also enjoyed the conversation about NoSQL and reporting. For quite a while, I have been drawn a line between tra- my transaction database and my reporting database. For me, I just see NoSQL as another transaction database that requires an ETL process to move the data over to a reporting database. I have not investigated the ETL area to see what products are emerging for NoSQL. I'm sure there'll be quite a few in the coming years. Perhaps a future reporting show can touch on ETL technologies for reporting databases. Thanks for the walk down memory lane and keep up the good work. We will. And uh, funny, Jeff, I am hunting for exactly that project. I want a case study show where somebody's using NoSQL for its benefits on the front end, on the OLTP side, and then has a relational database on the back end for reporting. And what is that ETL process? I'm all over you, man. That's what we'll do. As soon as I got it, we'll do it and you'll get to hear it. So thanks so much for your comment. I'd like to ship a mug to you. We'll be in touch. And if you'd like a mug, you can write a comment on the site at .netrocks.com. Yeah, .netrocks.com. Man, we got so many comments on the electricity show. Yeah, the geek outs are a whole other thing, aren't yeah, they? They may be a spinoff in our um, future. And I need to say, for the record, I was somewhat resistant to these shows in the beginning. Resistant? Ha ha, that's funny. Yeah, you like that on the yeah, electricity show? Yeah. Oh, um, uh, And every so often, I have to just send a note to my friend Carl and say, Carl, you were right. So I'd like to say it on the show right now. Carl, you were right. The well, geek out shows are fun for us, and apparently people are really enjoying them. Apparently they do. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and, but, you know, before we get to, uh, the real meat of this show, I need to tell you that Pluralsight, one of our fabulous sponsors, provides comprehensive developer training online. They have nearly 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release eight to 10 new courses every month and offer a free 10 day trial where you have 200 minutes of access to their training library, the entire library. Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on software practices including courses on design patterns, test-first development, object-oriented design, continuous integration, and Scrum. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And the nicest guys. They are the sweetest people. Yes. Great people. And, you know, a lot of our guests mm-hmm. go and do Pluralsight stuff. I've actually learned quite a lot you from bet. watching Pluralsight videos. Great stuff. And enough frivolous talk. Let's get to our guest. Uh, Rob LeBay is a senior security program manager in Microsoft IT's information security and risk management team. Rob has over eight years experience working with internal and external application development teams, helping them develop high quality, secure line of business apps. He has extensive experience helping teams design and develop good application development processes and practices based upon Microsoft's security development lifecycle. Rob is currently working in the infrastructure security services team, bringing a touch of developer sanity to the insane world of infrastructure security. Welcome, Rob. You know, uh, in a previous show, uh, one of our guests, Sahil Malik, described the two opposing forces in any project as developer fairies versus infrastructure ogres. And uh, that has a, been a question on the 64-bit question quiz show ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly because it stopped us both at the tracks and we needed a 10-minute break to stop laughing. Pretty much, yeah. And <laughs> it's an excuse to make me do the dramatization, which is great fun. Is, uh, does security always have to be enforced by ogres? Is that just the way it is? You know, you know now that I'm in the infrastructure world, it's funny how that seems to match since... The infrastructure guys are much more prone culturally to be saying no. So I guess they, they come off as ogres a bit more often than uh, 
than developer guys who seem to just want to get things done. So well, I suppose that, it, it works. As an IT guy, I understand that because uh, it's the correct answer. Yeah. And I, I, I said it before, I beat this drum all the time. As a developer, we hate security because it gets in the way. It's a limit, you know, and we don't like limits. We like expanding what our, what we can do with our 10 fingers. We don't like limitations. So, so naturally that comes for us at the end of the process. All right. Now I have this totally open application that can do everything. Now, how do we limit it? Yeah. And that, that tends to be a bit of a backwards way, right? Because it takes, it takes a lot of time, money and effort at the back end and none of us have any of those. Yeah. Time or money or the will to put the effort in, I think at the end, once you're finished. Well, and, and I think you guys are hitting on the key point here, which is that security is something that comes at the end. Well, in reality, it sh- shouldn't, but it does in reality most of the time, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does. I think it, which is a shame because like I said, it's, it's stupid expensive to do it at the end. And so it doesn't get done. So just a couple of weeks ago, we had the SOPA blackout, which uh, we're recording the day after. Um, or maybe it's two days after. I can't remember now, but it's a, it's all a wash. But anyway, a couple of days ago, you know, Wikipedia said we're shutting down because, uh, you know, in protest to SOPA and 17,000 other websites also did some kind of shutdown or blackout. Uh, some page we did too. We put up a page where you had to, you had to click anywhere, but it got the message across, you know, Hey, this site could go away. Um, what was your, what's your take on all that, and how does it relate to security? I I think the whole SOPA thing. When I look at what they're trying to accomplish, I get it. I I mean, IP theft and piracy is a, a big problem. I think I I think when I look at the the, the bills that are hopefully going away, um, it it really is the wrong way to go with the problem. It, it's squishing a fly with a Mack truck. Nice. Um. Yeah. It it. it re- and, you know, if you try to hit the fly with the Mack truck, you're probably going to go through the fly into the building and take mm-hmm. that out too. And I think, I think that's what we're, we're risking with that is, is taking out, you know, the, the, the building that is the internet trying to squish a, albeit very annoying fly. Yeah. It, and it certainly seemed to work at least, you know, as of two days after the blackout, uh, you know, the, the response from lawmakers was, Hey, people really care about this. Maybe we ought to think twice about supporting it and as is. And, uh, but, but, but it is a, it is an issue. Uh, intellectual property is a, an issue that's near and dear to my heart. Cause, you know, when I wanted to make an album as a musician, albums were made out of this stuff called vinyl. And I just thought it would be so cool to have, you know, be, when, if you could just get to the point where you could, go to a studio, record something, produce it, and get it on vinyl, that was like your automatic filter of quality. Like, if you could be on vinyl, you're probably pretty freaking good, because it was difficult to do. And so when you buy an album in the store, you know, there's, it's it's going to be going through that filter automatically. Um, now that everybody can make music just by, you know, screeching into their iPhone and, you know... Uh, taking that through software and processing of the effects and putting it to a canned beat or something. And, and that's just as much of an artistic expression, but what I'm saying, everybody can get in on it now. Um, I, I guess I'm trying to say that, you, you know, in this age of music everywhere, 
it's very difficult to 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 sell anything because especially because it's digital and it's very difficult to protect your intellectual property because it's out there because you want people to be able to download it and listen to it you also want to make a living on i guess i may not make a living maybe we can't expect to do that anymore with digital content it's it's actually interesting i had a conversation uh this morning with a colleague of my team who writes a lot of books and he's mentioning now these days he can find on certain websites p- full PDFs of his book before his publishers sent him his uh, preview copy. Oh my god! Uh, as the author, um, so that it, I mean it's a real challenge we have to solve. I just don't think this is the way to do it. Yeah. Well, have you had any thoughts about what is a better way? <sighs> yeah, that that that's a tough one. Um, I think I think it's going to have to start with essentially a do-over on on how we look at copyright to begin with, and how we approach copyright and fair use to begin with. I think we saw that a bit when we sort of see good legitimate um, music stores, uh, whether it be iTunes or any of the other ones. That I think people, at least a lot of people I know, at least uh, start stopped pirating music as much because there was an easy way to get what they wanted yeah the 99 song cent song changed it when i could buy the song i wanted with maximum convenience for a buck i did but however what we failed to understand is that the hardware platform was very much a part of that apple was sort of holding a gun to your head and say you love your iphone great if you want to listen to music on it you're going to have to pay for it because you can't get it on there any other way but, but that's not true. You could, you, iTunes, you could load music any way you wanted. If you pirated your music and was sitting on your hard drive, you could just load it into iTunes that way. The average mortal didn't know how to do that, but anybody who was willing to steal music could do it. Right, right. And, and so it's basically dropped the barrier of entry where now the money and effort I save isn't worth the hassle to pirate it. Right. I might as well just spend, cause my time's worth something too. And so it's gotten to that point. I think the, the studios, uh, Hollywood haven't quite graphs that I think if they started working with um, looking for, you know good digital uh, providers, I think you know you start to see piracy rates drop to zero when it becomes all right, this is going to take me how many hours hunting it down, putting it together, downloading it through BitTorrents, hoping I don't you know get owned along with the process versus pay a buck fifty, two bucks and download it from some known good legitimate place. Most I think will pay the buck fifty. I I tend to agree, and it's, you you look at what's happened with the Kindle and eBooks as well, where the lowest friction is this under ten dollar book, or even if it's under twenty dollar book, it's just convenient. I think people so far and before that, when we went with all the digital rights management approach, we were making it harder and harder to pirate, but not making it easy to buy. Right and now that they're actually doing both, making it easy to buy, and even backing off on them, making it let not as hard to pirate, people are buying. Yeah, and I, I think that's the direction. I just this legislative Mack truck that that they've got. Um, yeah, this it's 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 overkill. It's just gonna it's gonna do way more harm than good. Yeah, it, it, it's a funny thing. Incentives, and really, that's what you're managing here. If somebody has the incentive to click button A and listen to something for free, or click button B and pay a dollar for it it doesn't matter that it's only a dollar they'll always click button a yeah sure they will it's just that it's not that simple no it's not but but it does illustrate the problem that you're up against how however if button a that's free is going to take you 
is really 16 steps, button A versus button B for a dollar that's one button. That's going to change it, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I, you, you probably have friends in this business who hoard digital content. You know, you know who I'm talking about. People that you may or may not be friends or know, but you, you get to talking to some people and they'll say something like, oh, I have every movie ever made or every song ever made in my collection. I've got NAS devices stacked 10 deep in my closet. You know, you just tell me what you want and, and I'll get it for you. You know what I mean? Do you know yeah. people like this? I do. Well, well, sure. And it's the same guy driving the Chevette with spinners on the rims, but still. <laughs> it's you know it's the same type of guy there's always going to be those people and you know you know those people you know you just kind of look at you'll still just look at like you do today and shake your head and carry on okay that's very good for you to say and you're a better person than most people but the fact of the matter is is that you know this kind of stuff happens all the time and piracy is a huge problem so i i'm not i'm not for sopa hey man i blacked out our sites but what I'm, and I think it is too broad. I just want to, you know, let's get past complaining and try to find uh, a, a real solution. And if we, and if anybody listening has what they think is the answer or a good solution, by all means, contact your representatives and tell them about it. You may be starting the seed of a new bill that will actually do some good. Yeah, I don't think anybody's arguing that piracy is a problem. It's bad. Heck. You know, the company I work for loses how much to that a year? Uh, but it, I think, I just think, yeah, I agree. SOPA is just the wrong approach to yeah. the, to the problem. Right. Hope we find the right approach soon. Yeah. I'm not sure what right is. Um, yeah. So I guess this is a dot net show, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I thought we were talking about security. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's jump back there. I'm going to let my friend Richard Campbell with his IT hat. Take over from here. Now that I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> Your soapbox? Soap box. Is that what you said? Did I said you say my, that? I said my soapbox, but two seconds later, I thought soap box would have been the right word to say, <laughs> Carl. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Rob, we did start off initially talking about this idea that security tends to come at the end. But if you're going to talk about a life cycle, that really doesn't mean the end anymore, does it? Um, no, it doesn't. I mean, really, you know, and when I think beginning, I'm thinking, you know, back when the application is a twinkle in somebody's eye that says, hey, wouldn't it be cool if... 
And if we can start security at that point with somebody somewhere going, yeah, but, you know, then I think we get a lot further off. Yeah. And, and you know, go back to what you said before and not say no. Um, I don't think security people should ever say no. Um, I like to, you know, when I've got folks, uh, security folks working on a project, I forbid them from saying no. Uh, <laughs> That's why they say so. Yeah. Well, so. well no is a cop out. I, I think because when it comes to security and the business doing what they have to do, the business wins every time. Um, right. There's some security guys that haven't quite come around to admitting that simple truth yet, but the business always wins. I I worked in an I, I consulted with an or a fairly large organization that had a guy whose primary job was uh, security and uh, and and if, I think his official title was something along the lines of business continuity manager and they but in the folks that actually had to work with him that when I was talking to them called him the business prevention manager ah right and, and that doesn't help anybody because then basically you get into um, you know, internal pissing matches where my VP is bigger than your VP, right. and the and the business VP is always bigger than the IT VP. Always. Then nothing happens, and you end up with a horrible, insecure solution going out that just makes everybody shudder. Versus the approach was okay, let's do that, and let's figure out together how we can do it as safely as possible. Looking at it from a risk perspective, then then you've got some folks' attention. And then you just figure out what you're going to do with the residual risk you can't solve, whether that be, you know, transfer it somewhere else or deal with it other places. But at least then you've got something, well, maybe not perfect and maybe still in your mind a completely stupid, harebrained idea. At least you've influenced it to make it better. Okay. And again, that's too late the week before deployment to do that. Absolutely. And then when I, and I'm looking at the software development lifecycle site from Microsoft, and the cycle looks just like the development lifecycle. You don't need the word security. It's the same kind of thing. Requirements, design, implementation, verification, release. Like that's the normal iteration of building software. It is. And that's not accidental. Um, the theory being, if we can put in good security controls and blend it in with every phase of the software development lifecycle, it at some point becomes natural. Hmm. And it, it be, at some point becomes just part of what you do in design or part of what you do in development or part of what you do in, in each of these phases, we're going to do these security things. We're going to have these security controls to be sure we're on track. And then when you stumble across at the end, all of a sudden you stop and look and went, wait a second, I actually managed to build something that's pretty secure and I like it. And Wow, how'd that happen? And it almost feels like it happened by accident. Um, I always, back in, uh, before I joined Microsoft, when I used to look at projects for security, I used to look at project plans. And if I saw a security line item, normally towards the bottom, I knew it was going to be a gong show. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a lost day right there. <laughs> right? It, it, you know it's going to be a gong show. Um, you know, really, you know, borrow from our friends at Ford, um, a lot of people keep saying, you know, security is job number one. It's the most important thing we do at the end. Um, but really, security done right, I like to call job zero. Right. It's not a job. It's it's just part of how you do things. And it, the goal of SDL really isn't to make make an individual application secure. It's really to start a, a culture change and, okay. and, and a, a belief change um, in how we approach things um, going through it. And, and having you know that that yeah but guy is the most valuable guy in the, in the organization, you know, because he's going to point out the 
things everybody else overlooked in their in, in your you know their, their geek glory at this cool thing they've come up with. Yeah, because he's going to say yeah, but and poke at it and go, you know, we we can't do that. This is not safe. Right, and I mean, I think every organization needs to find find the guy who. There's always one guy who is really good at identifing the unintended consequences right. of something. Who can kind of see down the road and go, you know, maybe not a great idea because of X, Y, and Z. And you can go too far with that, too, though. Like, you start creating these crazy scenarios. I've dealt with this with disaster recovery guys. But what if the building gets hit by an asteroid? You know, like, there, there's a level of sanity you have to sort of call back on. Well, right. that that gets back to your bio, you know, bring a touch of developer sanity to the insane world of infrastructure security. Give us a little example of developer sanity that you would bring into this world that, uh, you know, make this relevant for us developers. You know, so I was, you know, I wrote a little bit tongue in cheek because I think some of my coworkers that are the infrastructure guys, when they hear this, are going to doubt my sanity. But yeah. um, because we tend to look at things a little bit different, I think. Things are by nature really absolute to infrastructure people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're dealing with wires and ports and switches and firewall ackles. And um, a lot of these things have become, you know, are for the pure infrastructure guys, it's very black and white. The bits are going or the bits are not. Right. It, there's not a lot of, you know, you know, half the byte is gone, but half of it stayed behind doesn't happen. You know what I mean? It, it's, <laughs> It's it's very black and white. Um, application guys have always been a little bit more creative. Um, by definition, I mean it, it's a much more creative discipline. Um, the range of what we can do um, it is very broad. But now we start looking at infrastructure. We start bringing in things like Active Directory, and we start looking at things like PKI and, and crypto infrastructures. And those infrastructure, you know, in quote bits, are starting to look a whole lot more application-y. You said PKI, right? Yeah. Give us that acronym. Uh, public key infrastructure. Okay. The certificate infrastructures. Right. The stuff that, that SSL slash TLS depends on. Right. Another TLA. What's TLS? That's the, the root technology behind SSL. Yeah, we're supposed to call it TLS from now on, right? Like that's the TLS really means transport layer security, right? But it's basically symmetric encryption, right? Yeah. All of those things are getting a lot more application-y um, in, in nature. Uh, we start to look at you know, a lot of the data loss prevention things. It's getting a lot more creative. There's a lot more options on how to do things. It, it's just not as simple as going into your Cisco router and you know, flipping a few switches and making a few ports come alive and, and so on. It's, it's much more to that now. Um, so... And it's a good mix because when we look at, you know, coming back to .NET, especially applications, there's a codependence there. Um, if the two sides aren't talking, you've got, um, and I was, I'm dealing with a customer right now who's got problems where they've got overly strict infrastructure and then developers applying their creativity to get around it. Right. And, and that's a tough situation to be in where you're just circumventing. Well, that's where the whole port 80 thing came from. Right. You only let me put port 80, then fine. I'm going to push everything through port 80. Right. Very well, thank you for that port. I'll go. I'll go with that. So we've got a massive security issue, both potential and in some cases realized at a lot of companies, because developers, you know, have started, you know, trying to work around overly restrictive no men. You know, a developer's attitude often is, okay, 
say, you know, I dare you, say no. Oh, you did. Okay. Now I'll work around it. And I'll find a way to, you know, you can have your no, and I'll just deal with it. Yeah. At what, what point are developers becoming the hackers? Um, in almost every organization I work with. <laughs> and, and it's because, um, you know, I think it's because the infrastructure or the quote unquote infrastructure people and the developers just don't talk enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and, or when they do talk, it's right, it's at 2.59 right before the 3 a.m. maintenance window when something's got to get deployed. Right. Which is, again, a day late and a dollar short to be having the conversation about, you know, what ports and what services you need for your application to work. And where that falls under then is, oh, just run it as local admin. It'll, it'll still work then. Yeah, yeah. There's the great mistake right, right there. What I, what I, local admin, what I call the magic security pixie dust. You sprinkle some of that around and all the security errors just magically go away. Yeah. We, you know, when we did command line compiling back in the days of DOS, and I am embarrassed to say that that's the last time I did command line compiling. Um, we, you know, you could use slash D to turn off those pesky debugger errors, you know, the compiler errors when you had errors. So that's how you could remove bugs from your programs just by, just don't tell me that there are no, but they're bugs. Right, right, slash D. Um, anyway, that's just a joke. I'm sorry. It's a DOS joke. Hey, I got a question for you. So a little ways ago, you were talking about pushing everything over port 80 because that's what we as developers do. Fine. Um, you know, if I can only go through port 80. Do the firewalls of the day look at the traffic that's going through port 80 and say, that doesn't look like a web browser or... That doesn't look like HTTP. Uh, right, no, but that's don't what allow that. Is for. Does but that's it? what 443 is for. Right. No, no, it, this is my question. It, and, my and, question and is, sh- do, the, do, the fire, do the fire, are firewalls smart enough to look at traffic and say, that doesn't look like web traffic, you can't go there? So, so part of it is, sure. I mean, there's some of that capability, but that's what port 443 is for. If I'm wor- a developer and I'm worried about that, I'll just switch it to, the, to port 443 and now everything can be encrypted in, in its little packets and be, be nice and content and just be ones and zeros again and nobody, nobody knows. But, I mean, these days, when you look at what all the normal stuff going through port 80, it's hard to define abnormal now because yeah. everything's going through there now. But that, that was certainly a feature that came along during the dot-com boom where the PIX firewall, Cisco had tools that would do what they called deep stateful inspection and would actually read all the traffic through port 80 and you could create categories. And hey, if it wasn't an HTTP header or anything like that, you could block it. But you realize that was just a response to people, the, the fact that you blocked every other port besides 80 in the first place. Well, what's to stop anybody from, say, just making an http post but if they wanted to send some data which you know is completely different from http just uh you know encrypt it and serialize it and turn it into a big string and send it through what's nothing so so what's the point of that stuff uh, i i i think it, it really is you know somebody saw a problem and it, it was slat you know it was slash still is a problem. And, you know, what's, what's the quickest thing I can put in that I can monetize and make a good sales story for? Right? I mean, like, yeah. w- when you go to a security conference, uh, you know, pick your favorite, and you go into the exhibit hall, there are dozens of vendors selling 
boxes, various pizza box appliances with all kinds of cool blinking lights on them that they purport to do everything from, you know, stopping all SQL injections to saving the universe. Um, but in reality, you know, a lot of that, all it does, I, I think, in most cases, is add a few more blinking lights to your data center. And most I've seen have enough of those. You know, it's technology for technology's sake without taking that step back and looking at risk and looking at what's the best way to solve this. Um, you know, oftentimes it's not the $300 million cool blinky light solution. It's a almost free policy change and a process change that, that gets you out of your problem and you, and you move along that way. That's the, the great XKCD comic, right? The, I've come up with an encryption algorithm so strong that it'll take your machine a quadrillion years to crack it, right? And millions and millions of dollars worth of computer equipment. He says, or I can beat it out of you with a $5 wrench. Right. Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, it's giveaway good stuff time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, we're giving away a Telerik Ultimate Collection right now. If you don't know what this is, uh, we have a fan club. We have over a thousand members now of our, fan, of our fan club. Nice. You go to dotnerox.com, click on the big get free stuff button. And, uh, basically it's an excuse for us to give away lots of things. Anything that we can give away, we're going to. And what are we giving away today, my friend? Well, Telerik Ultimate Collection, which is $2,000 worth of, actually $7,000 worth of Telerik software, but a retail price of, uh, 2000. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we give away one every show. And today's winner is Lance Wolfers. Woohoo, Lance. Congratulations. Congratulations, Lance. Uh, we'll be getting in touch with you very soon. And, um, we've had nothing but, you know, kudos from our winners so far. Yeah. It turns out that that five minutes of your time is, is worth it. Well worth it. And we've got some other interesting stuff coming down the pipeline. So we don't do. get complacent. Keep your ears peeled because you never know what we're going to give away. That's right. We're going to start giving away Grape City Power Suites too. Nice. And every December, we're giving away at least $5,000 worth of computer technology. Well, computer-based technology. Might be a PC, might be... Something even cooler. Whatever the, the device of the day is or the biggest TV we can find. I don't know. You'll see. It'll be good. It'll be good. You'll love it. So keep listening for that and join the .NET Rocks fan club. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, so so we've got developers, you know, sufficiently shamed now. What can what can we do as developers to do our part? I I think what what it comes from as developers is uh, we have to start talking. Once we start envisioning applications. We, we have to resist the urge and, and you're know, growing up as the developer. I had that urge and I did, I'm just as guilty as doing this as anybody else, but resist that urge to say, Oh, I can do that. Retreat into your cubicle or office, close your door, put on your noise canceling headsets, fire up visual studio and go, which is just the natural, I think, urge we all have. You know, I've got a problem. I've got a requirement. Let me go code now. I think what we have to start doing. You know, right the earliest design phases, even if you don't have a formal design phase and, and the design exists in the whiteboard of your mind, is take that second to stop and start thinking about, okay, what potential threats do I have? How could this possibly be misused? And start thinking about your, and start perverting those requirements and start thinking about them as the attacker and start thinking about you know, what, what are the potential consequences to doing this? And a lot of your, 
your solutions will flow from that exercise. Uh, I mean, at Microsoft, we do it very formally. We call it a threat modeling exercise. Mm -hmm. Uh, We make tools available to do it in a very big formal way. I mean, if you're a developer shop of two guys in the office dog, it doesn't make sense to do that. But there's an interesting approach because not only things like, hey, this is only going to mean internal applications, so uh, we got to make sure that we don't expose it externally. Like, normally that would never come up because you're just not thinking about those things. Right. We think about those things. And and you've also got to remember down the road, particularly where we're seeing a lot of the, you know, when we get into this, you know, service-oriented architectures and all these web services, if you're doing a web service, you it, you may be writing it today to be used for a particular purpose. Six months from now or six years from now, somebody goes, hey, you've got this cool web service that gives me this data out there. Well, I'm going to connect it up to this external application so that I can, you know, reuse what you've done, which is the whole point. Right. And now all of a sudden it's not internal only anymore, right. is it? And I, if you haven't redone your threat model and, you know, had documentation that shows that th- this was a characteristic, I mean, we didn't have to d- address it. I guess I'm quite, my question is, should we have addressed sometime in the future this may be public so we have to do these things now? Or, you know, how do you I, deal with that? I, I think what we look at is, all right, if we're going to make a critical, what I call a critical design assumption, like this is going to be only ever used internally. You know, we, ha- we have to document those, but I, I would challenge almost all of those, especially internal, external, because... You know, when we look at where our problem children, quote unquote, lie in most business environments, a significant amount of our attacks are disgruntled employees. You know, right. I was just going to say with, that. And they're sitting in the cubicle next to you. Um, the other problem is even our external agents. When we look at um, uh, the groups, I like that are, you know, organized and determined, not singling out any particular uh, group or any particular three-letter marketing acronym uh, to define them. But when we look at those, their goals are to gain as quickly as possible legitimate internal access. Mm. And then everything they do from there, they're, they're internal. So the I don't have to do security because this is internal only is in my has always been, but Today, even more so, a, a cop out not to think about security. Because then what you're assuming is that the infrastructure fortress shall protect me. Right. And the infrastructure fortress hasn't been a fortress since port 80 was invented almost. Uh, I mean, I think application developers and the, and the security community as a whole are still looking at this this mentality of this this fortress, which, you know... Sure, we build this great fortress and these great firewalls and this great process, but then we start poking a million one holes in it from everything from SSL to the web to you name it. And now we've got this fortress that we've poked a whole bunch of holes in or basically laying the world into. It's not much of a fortress anymore. Well, is the problem here that we need developers to understand how the fortress works and actually use it? I I think the fortress is broken. I think rather than understand the fortress. I think developers within their own application design from security and the infrastructure people have to start looking at things more like a prison than a fortress. <laughs> I think they already do. Yeah, I think that's pretty much sums up the way we feel about it. Right? Where we're going to let everybody in, but we have to identify what the critical things are to prevent them from going out. I see. 
when that's what you mean by prison you know short of cameras and and keystroke recording tools and you know and all of those privacy invasive things what's really stopping uh somebody from putting a usb key in their machine and copying some files and taking them home so i mean there's there's tech there's technology available whether it be something like rms if you're in a microsoft space for for critical assets what you need to do what does that stand for uh rights management services which means now we can attach the security to the document right and so wherever that goes, um, if I've set the access to that document being only me and Carl can look at that, he Carl can throw it on a USB key, leave it in a taxi, and you can pick it up, and it's useless to you. But did I mention I'm a developer? That's tragic, but it should still be useless to you. Done properly. <laughs> That's- what I, my point is, I'm a developer. I can I can open a file and look around and s- figure it out. The, the encryption, the encryption, you know, should obviously be good enough that now encryption is always a good enough item, but it should be good enough so that it'll take you more effort and time and resources to do that than the asset itself is worth. Yeah, yeah, we did it. We did an RMS show over on Ronaz Radio, and it's actually pretty cool technology. But that, this is still not really in the development space. This is like you know general security right. protection. Okay, right. I'm trying to you know figure out how do we stop. Uh, internal people from exploiting our applications inappropriately because you've like I said it's got to be a prison it's not that we that we've already let them in how do we get them to top to stop taking stuff out right right and that that's it right you know you can go visit your brother in prison you just can't walk out with them right and that's the that's the thing we're going for and that's the strategy to approach versus trying to keep you know the bad guys out and and so where it starts with i think is policy it starts with um Honestly, a lot of people who copy critical things on their USB drives and walk out with them, honestly do it because they honestly don't know any better. Um, and They don't know they broke the rules. They don't know they've endangered the well, company. The rule doesn't exist, or the, if it does, they don't know about it. And they don't know they've created a big risk and endangered the company. Right. Um, and so that's where it starts, I think, is with uh, education and awareness overall and good security policies and then if it becomes things like a critical business need for people to dump things onto their usb drives Mm -hmm. and go with them sometimes it is i mean i know it is for me a lot of cases um so all right then we look at that's the need how do we how do we minimize the risk and do it safely um so you know for me often it's a bit locker to go encrypted drive or maybe it's you know an iron key with built-in encryption on it that we use for that uh, but if that's a need and people are doing it, you know, getting away from the, I'll just tell them not to do that anymore. If that's a need, <laughs> yeah. just don't right? do that. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Um, if that's a need and a legitimate business requirement, don't do that. Just means that they do it with the, uh, they just plug in the thumb drive they picked up at Black Hat. Right. Um, instead, say, okay, that's a need that people are doing. How do we, how do we minimize the risk and do it safely? So is this all part of the security development life cycle? Absolutely it is. I mean, this is, this is all that way up front figuring out and discussion, um, even impacting necessarily, you know, the, the policy level to, to figure out how we're going to approach it way, way up in the, you know, wouldn't this be a really cool idea stage? Um, because once you get that figured out, I mean, a dumb idea in a design document is really cheap to fix. Right. 
Mm. It's a backspace key. Yeah. Right? Or highlight it in control X with how depending how big the dumb idea is. It's really cheap and easy to fix. It, it once that dumb idea works its way down and becomes a feature of a product or feature of an application, now all of a sudden you've got a, a dumb idea that is very, very expensive if it's even at all possible to fix. And I, I mean, the, the scale I, lo- I, I like to think of is, and the number I like to use uh, myself, and I haven't been able to vet this, but nobody's argued it with enough customers I've looked at that's probably pretty close to right. A security bug in running code costs roughly $10,000 to fix. Hmm. By the time you look at the costs of uh, you finding the issue, going in, fixing it, updating documentation, doing regression testing, redeploying, going through that whole Cycle. process you've got to do to fix code. Um, for most larger organizations, you're looking at a bit of $10,000 bill each. Huh. So at that rate, and that's not even counting what the impact might be if it wasn't you that found it, it was some other person who found it on your behalf. Right. Um, where it can get astronomically expensive in terms of you know, reputational damage and the, and the expenses you know, to customers. I mean, what's it cost? the world as a whole to apply a security patch to, to a major product, whether it be a Windows or an Oracle or what have you. What's that cost, right? That's a, it's a huge number. Even in a small company where it's just your company running it, if you've got to bring down a critical system for a couple hours to patch something, it's not a trivial issue, right? Um, so it, it, really be, it really behooves you to, to start to look at as early as we can push that and, and solve as many problems as we can in that requirement stage where you're when you're saying yeah, but and if he is, if somebody is crazy and says yeah, what if the asteroid hits the building? Then say we're all dead, nobody cares. Move along to the next one. Yeah, I, in in dr actually having that conversation about yes, the business shuts down and you all lose your jobs. Like there is a threshold of what's sensible and what isn't. Right, and, and, and the trick is, and that is as as a developer, never your decision. Yeah, that, that well, what's funny is when you. These are generally business discussions, aren't they? They, they have to be. Um, so, you know, as a rule, as a security person, I never say no. Mm-hmm. I instead say, okay, here's the risk of doing that. Now let's go through and discuss it with the business. My job as a security person is to translate the risk to terms the business can understand so they don't look at me like I'm Charlie Brown's teacher and let them make the decision and sign it off at the appropriate level. Right. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago, I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package. So You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.NET from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. Can you do this stuff without a security expert? Are, are we smart enough as developer teams to 
to do this? I I think I think we can. I think what it takes. Um, I mean, the the critical skill I think is the ability to look at unintended consequences and and pervert features. I mean, this sounds like a, a good beta tester too. Has that sort of knack of finding ways to break your app. Right. If you're a very structured organization that only tests, for example, by test plans, mm-hmm. test plans never get you security bugs, right? You, 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 a test plan never does it. Um, but what it does do, you know, it tests features to be sure the guy, right. you know, concatenated the string together properly or, or put the right label on the button. But what it really needs is somebody who starts to look at it, you know, starting at the design phase and then it, then carry through. Um, making security important right through development and, and test. Uh, because we have to prevent the, the, at the end of the day, right, no matter how good your design is, um, there's still opportunity for the guy at the keyboard to screw things up. For sure. Uh, um, and not new, through Northwest alone, I spend a fair amount of time talking to universities, mm-hmm. and most universities do a very, very poor job of training people in secure code. Um, in a lot of programs, even still today, it gets lip service if that. So developers aren't coming out of school learning how to write secure code. Right. As a whole. It's, it's just not even a conversation point. It's, it, it's not a conversation point. It's not a b- big deal. Um, it doesn't come up for the whole. There, there's some schools where it does, but on the whole, it does not. Are we still worried about in-memory attacks? In other words, keeping memory structures around so that somebody can put a you know a scope on where your your process and and look and see what the data is are are, are we going there I, you- I think I think when we look at it depends on the type of application if you're writing windows or a an application can get very wide release uh, to a bunch of different places I think I think yeah we're concerned about it um, that's why you got sp- stuff like the ant address space randomization that's that's in Windows now and some other things. So yeah, it's it's definitely a concern. If you're writing an application for um you know our company to handle sales or whatever it happens to be internally, I think that is so far down your list of concerns that, you know, I, I'd be really happy if you had everything else so perfect that you got that far down and started worrying about that. Um it, it's just it's just such a minor it's a minor point it's not where we're seeing attacks uh we're seeing it through bad authentication bad input validation sql injection all that you know the owasp top 10 on on the website we're seeing it through all of those things yeah is it a concern sure it is just for normal line of business applications it's not a, it's just not a huge concern and in the net space it's even less so of a concern because we're trusting the platform to do most of that for us. Uh, I, w- I know we're getting down on time here, Rob, and I really want to talk about the set of tools that Microsoft provides around the uh, the security development lifecycle because it seems really, I-, I think as a developer, I get really excited that you're you're not just giving me a, a stack of documentation or you know a white paper and a video, but there's stuff here. Right. Um, and, and so there's a few tools. Um, th- there and they range, I suppose, from the things that only apply to larger teams. Things like our threat modeling tool is a fabulous tool for threat modeling in larger teams, bigger applications. So if you're a bigger company, a bigger shop, it makes sense to have a look at that um, for helping you organize your threat modeling. If you're smaller, it makes more sense to do it in Visio and a whiteboard. But for bigger teams, that makes sense. 
from the actual application development point point of view, we we have tools available. Um, if you're a web developer, things like our anti cross site scripting library mm-hmm. that is designed to help you prevent those sorts of common mistakes. Um, we have built into Visual Studio now, yeah, you know, and and more coming. You know, good code analysis tools that you just have to use. Um, to to help find those uh, static uh, bugs you've made, um, but the big thing really is is practice. Um, there are there are tools uh, and sites that can help you learn how to write secure code uh, that we have available that can help you figure this stuff out. We have a site called hellosecureworld.com. Nice. Um, and what it actually has is a bunch of labs and exercises where you can practice running secure code in this in a sort of hack and defend way. We've got you know a little game, broken website that's been hacked or broken web applications, figure out how to fix them. And it'll walk you through sort of those code habits that that you'll be looking for. And then what you what you do from there is then apply that to your own code and look for the same mistakes you've made. Um, and odds are you'll find them. And I think that's the big thing for me is just this you know, they, I'm even just looking at the threat modeling tool and going, yeah, this is something I want to play with just because it says, have you dealt with this threat? Here are some mitigations for it. Have you dealt with this threat? I, I, and I like the software approach to that. I think people, especially developers, appreciate, give me code, give me stuff I can work with that I can uh, help understand where my threats are. Yeah, it's an absolutely fabulous tool, particularly for larger teams. Um, but the, th- the, the goal is, even if you don't use the tool, go through the tool so you get a good view of the exercise and do it yourself on the whiteboard if the tool is too big for you. Right. Um, but but it's, it's not the tools. And there's, there's no, if I ever came up with a magic security tool that you just run in Visual Studio and it instantly makes everything secure, um, I'll be a very rich man. You're sure. Well, and but, just as soon as you do that, somebody's going to come out with the ultimate anti-security tool. You're no fun. <laughs> as, long as, as long as I get my money first, right? Um. <laughs> but, you know, to Carl's point, actually, as facetious as it may have been, the biggest thing I would like as a guy who builds and works on a lot of different websites is a, is a, a tool that will test my site for the sort of known script kitty exploits. Look, I know I can't beat the best black hats in the world, but I don't think they care about me. What I care about are the kids who are just downloading stuff and they're able to hack at my site. Honestly, getting rid of things like um, the anti-cross-site scripting tool to eliminate cross-site scripting is going to solve 90% of those. Right. Um, and then it's just good development practices. You can't have SQL injection if you don't have dynamic SQL. Mm-hmm. Well, so and, just and, don't and do and it. You're right. We've pushed on a few of these already, but I guess this is where, and again, I really like this idea. I don't want a dedicated security guy right, on this. I want my devs to include this in the regular process. This life cycle looks just like regular development life cycle. And, right. and so we'll include this in the process. I just want to make sure that I'm picking up the bits that matter. So it sounds like you're going a little uh, towards making this stuff appealing, like with the games and stuff. And that, that I think is the biggest challenge. It isn't the technology. It's getting developers to even talk and think about security. It seems to be the challenge. Um, you know, you, you have great developer conferences that play into the developer's ego. You know, it's like, uh, you know, learn how you can do this with that and how we don't need this anymore. We can just go do this and, you know, be very productive and 
and you're awesome. You know what I mean? But, but how many secure code conferences do you see? You know, how many? If you confer- find one, let me know, and I'll, I'll probably. This is go. what I'm saying. It's just <laughs> exactly. like exactly. Uh, I think we, you're right, and I think the push has been to make things as easy as we can for developers, so they can be very productive. And I, I think that's important. Um, you know, things like .NET, where developers don't have to worry about the plumbing as much; it can just work on solving whatever problem they're getting paid to to solve. So that I think that's the move in the right direction. I think the challenge is when it comes to developers and application security is we don't spend a lot of time on telling people how to use things properly or safely um, and, and how to protect themselves that way. But we also have a lot of developers who I want to call it, you know, overthink things. Um, give example of last you know, several years I've looked at a lot of applications with encryption problems. And we have fabulous encryption libraries in .NET that are very easy to use. Yet, developers go and invent their own encryption. Still. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, and, and they come up with some bit shift dance that they do to encrypt things, and it's, it's a pointless exercise. You know, why would you do that when there's fabulously good li- encryption libraries already in the platform that are industry standard, and they get to be that way for a reason, right? No security um, through obscurity. Yeah, you know, obscurity. No, all obscurity does is cost you money because it com- becomes impossible to to maintain and manage things. Um, you know, use the standard things. Use the platform features that are there, and it starts to get really, really hard to go wrong. It it, it starts to the platforms are getting to the point now where you actually have to make effort to screw things up. Um, so, so start you. If people would just use those platform features and use you know what's avail- made available for them, they're they're going to get be ninety percent of the way there most times already. And then it's then it's just a matter of doing things like regular code reviews and good practices and training developers how to do things right. And you're you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna win ninety percent of the time doing that. You'll at least you know have the equivalent of the club on your car. Yeah, you know, make make it to you know. Yours a little bit tougher, so they'll go to the next guy, um, which is really all you really want to do, right? You know, hackers will hack, so have them hack somebody else. Um, but but that kind of focus is is, is really what's critical, um, and that and then it's a culture thing, a culture a culture security. Uh, one of my customers, they start a contest. Um, every bug you find in code that's a security issue, you get an entry in the draw. And then at the end of the quarter, somebody gets a trip. Cruise ah, for you. Okay. Cruise for you and somebody else. Um, for some, for the person who finds the most security bugs or the best security bug or comes at the draw, however they decide to do it. So security bonus. So it's a security bonus incentive. Now, now you're talking an incentive. And and so now people are. And I think they put the caveat in that you had to find the bugs in somebody else's code, not your own. But, <laughs> so you That's could great. You know, so you couldn't pre-stage the bugs, uh, but reg- you know, have an Excel spreadsheet of all the mistakes I made, so you can go file the bugs afterwards. But it, but what it really does then is start to bring in that culture of security where, hey, this this matters, and this is important to the company. And right. The company's point, point. It doesn't have to be a trip. It's amazing what developers will do for hats and t-shirts. It is amazing. Because I know what I'll do for hats and t-shirts. So yeah. it's, it's difficult it's, because what you're doing is you're rewarding uh, developers for stuff that doesn't happen, right? 
It's like, hey, we didn't get hacked, you know, because we're secure. Great. Everybody gets a bonus. Like, you know what I mean? Like when security works, nothing happens. That's yeah. the thing that's weird about it. Right. And nothing <laughs> happens a good thing. Well, yeah, but I mean, the, as developers, it's completely contrary to our mode of thinking. Our mode of thinking is watch the software do what it does. Hey, I did that. That's my, that's a model of my brain on the screen doing something that I came up with. Aren't I awesome? When security works, nothing happens. So, so where do you, you know, how do right. you take it, credit for nothing happening? It, it, it's a cultural <laughs> thing. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's always something happening. I mean, there's, you know, one of, one of my colleagues in our instant response group always says there's two kinds of companies, those that, that know they've been hacked and those that don't know it yet. Right. Um, but, but really from a developer's perspective, if we can encourage folks at that level and build a culture of security, that, that security really is the most important thing we don't do. It's because it's a part of our, our culture, a part of our DNA. We get to the point where, you know, and you do it through rewarding people for finding security bugs. Um, I've got uh, one customer who encourages people um, not only to report phishing emails they receive so they can track them, but if they fall for one, to report the fact that they were stupid and fell for one. <laughs> And they actually reward them with money for for reporting the fact that they did something stupid. Um, so that, again, it builds that culture of, you know, everybody makes mistakes and does stupid things. I'm sure now if it happened 50 or 60 times a quarter, that there'll be another discussion to be had. But building that culture where, where security is an important thing, it is really where you start. And, and that's that's the meta goal of SDL. It's to to build that culture and and the process and and that mindset that security is important. Without that, all the tools, all the guidance does, isn't worth anything. Um, it the, the sort of meta goal really is that that cultural shift, uh, that that cultural change. That you know, coming from the most senior levels of management, this is not just important; it's fundamental to us continuing to exist. Sure, that's the message I think. Rob, I think that's a show. Sounds good. Yeah, this is great stuff. And, and man, I, I hope, I hope, uh, you know, maybe somebody out there listening to the show gets fired up to take an initiative to, uh, to, to merge, uh, incentives with security on your development team, uh, in a way that you're not doing now. Cause that's great stuff. Perfect. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.com. 
rocks.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a